This is Primus Podcast number 59, and today we're looking at sub-boundary layer vortex generators. They're also known sometimes as micro-vortex generators. And vortex generators are very interesting because you can find them in many different applications. They range from cars to aircraft, fixed-wing and rotational rotary wings, to wind turbines and so on. And there are so many different types of wind vortex generators and from different heights and shapes and different angles of attack, etc. And we're going to look at some of these today. So to do that, we're going to look at a paper called Computational Modeling of Three Different Sub-Boundary Layer Vortex Generators on a Flat Plate. This is open access, and you can find a link to it in the description. And quickly, let's talk about what sub-boundary layer vortex generators are. So to begin with, when vortex generators first came about, they've been around for like 50 or 60 years. When they first came about, uh, they were typical vortex generators. So they were about the same height as the boundary layer. And one of the general thinkings behind this um, sizing was that we want to um, have them interact with the boundary layer. And I'll get into how they do that in a second, but we want them to interact with the boundary layer. So we should make them about the same size as the boundary layer. And then over years, they started looking at different sizes and sub-boundary layer or micro-vortex generators have become quite popular as well because they have a lot of advantages, which we'll also talk about soon. So let's talk about vortex generators first, how they operate. The general principle of a vortex generator is that they generate vortices. Surprise. <laughs> and these vortices, what they do is that they uh, they try to, they, their aim is to inject higher momentum flow into the boundary layer near the surface. Now, why would you want to do this? The main reason why you want to do this is to prevent stall. So if you look at how stall occurs, if you have a, the flow going over, let's say, a, a wing, this is a quintessential example, there's an adverse pressure gradient that occurs over the wing. So what that does is it decelerates the boundary layer because you have this, this pressure, which is constantly pushing against the boundary layer once it starts to get past about 25% cord mark, which is for uh, typical NACA four-digit airfoil. For other airfoils, it changes the position when you have this adverse pressure gradient starting. But let's just assume a simple example, first of all. So for a simple four-digit NACA airfoil, uh, the adverse pressure gradient starts at about the 25% cord mark. So you've gone over the wing a little bit and you have this constant pressure continually just trying to decelerate the boundary layer. And that's not a big problem for the upper in the boundary layer because when you get higher up in the boundary layer, the velocity is faster. So this velocity, it will reduce, but it won't start to reverse. But... When you get closer to this, the boundary layer, closer to the boundary, sorry, the boundary layer becomes very slow. Now, if you haven't seen what a boundary layer profile looks like before, it looks very like, imagine a um, exponential curve, like a, it's where it just starts off fairly um, slow and then it really ramps up and goes higher. So that's what a boundary layer profile looks like. That What this means is that as you go higher up in the boundary layer, the velocity increases, but very close to the boundary, the velocity is very slow. So when you're going over the airfoil, for example, you'll start to reach a zero velocity and then reverse. When that happens, you get... So the idea of vortex generators is, well, if we're lacking energy in this region and we're creating stall then, why not just inject some more energy there? And there are a whole bunch of ways that you can do that. One of them is with vortex generators. So you create vortices. These vortices spin around the inside the boundary layer. They pull higher moving faster moving fluid or home momentum flow as the um, typical term you use is and it pushes it into the uh, boundary layer near the surface 
that then like re-energizes the boundary layer there and allows the boundary layer to travel further over the surface before you then get this flow separation occurring before the velocity goes to zero because you've now given it more energy. And it reminds me of that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger song um, by Luke Millions. Anyway, it gives it more energy and <laughs> it prevents stall. So you can push the airfoil, for example, to much higher angles of attack and still produce a lot of lift. So that's how Vortex Marines first came about. And as I mentioned, they were about the same height as the boundary layer because thinking was, well, when you go higher up in the boundary layer, and even the free stream velocity is very high. So we want to get a lot of that good flow and pump it into the uh, boundary layer near the surface and re-energize that a lot. So let's make these Vortex Marines interact with the fluid up there and drag it down. But then they found that there are some benefits to that. So obviously they are very effective in doing that. One problem is though, that they create a lot more drag. So they create drag, not only due to friction as we'll cover shortly, but also due to an increase in pressure drag because you now have a lot more vorticity and a lot more wake and chaotic motion. So to get around that, sub-boundary layer vortex generators or micro-vortex generators were also investigated. And there are quite a few papers, which I should actually cover in a podcast because they're not very interesting. But um, they found that micro-vortex generators can um, perform almost as well as a regular vortex generator, uh, but they don't give nearly as great a drag penalty. So they are very good. And that's one of um, the ideas of this paper. And we look at three different vortex generators. So those, that's vortex generators in a nutshell. Let's get on with what they investigated and these different types of vortex generators because you can have more than you can poke a stick out. Like there are so many different types of vortex generators out there that you can make. And they looked at three different ones, one that I've never seen before. And it was quite interesting. So let's get into it. Oh, before we go any further as well, I should probably say this is quite a big paper as well. And there's a lot to cover in vortex generators. So this will probably be a two-part podcast. And I'll probably do a lot more podcasts on vortex generators as well because you can do like 10 or 20 of them and you'll still cover new things every time. There's just that much information on them. So here they say vortex generators are passive flow control devices usually placed in pairs with an array configuration on the blade surface of interest. And the aim of it is to modify the airfoil pressure distribution and delay flow separation, as I mentioned earlier. Let's just quickly cover passive flow control devices. What that means is you don't really have any feedback. You can't, um, the strict definition is you can't change their shape and there's no feedback. So they're, they're just objects that you place on something and that's how they stay forever. And they are usually placed in pairs. What this means is you can either produce co-rotating vortices or counter-rotating vortices. If you think about what vortices do to a fluid, it entrains and induces velocities in the fluid around it, in around a vortex. So if you have two vortices and they're rotating in the opposite signs, when you're between two of them and they're both rotating such that they're pushing fluid down, the fluid in between them starts to get squashed and the boundary layer becomes actually much thinner. When you go um, between two vortices that are spinning in opposite sign, but they're pushing the velocity up, the, the fluid up, so then training the fluid and moving it up, the boundary layer gets much thicker. So those are for counter-retaining vortices. And these are, um, I don't want to say they're the most popular because I, don't, I haven't covered every single situation with vortex generators, but I'm going to say the most popular because <laughs> everything that I've really seen, and it's over a bunch of different fields, counter-retaining vortices and counter-retaining vortex generators are usually far more common. Now, co-rotating vortices, on the other hand, these are 
vortices that spin in the same site. So it doesn't matter where you go along uh, the span. You have one vortex, which is always going to be pushing fluid up. The other vortex is always pushing fluid down. And uh, just off the top of my head, generally these vortices don't um, delay stall as well as counter-rotating vortices. So that's what they mean when they say they're placed in pairs. They usually operate in pairs in a sort of fashion. And then they say that the local boundary layer is modified by these vortex generators and there's an exchange of momentum between the upper part of the boundary layer, as I mentioned, and the lower part of the boundary layer. And this modification of the boundary layer is possible due to the incidence angle marked by the angle of attack of the vortex generator to the free stream velocity. So vortex generators are dimensioned with respect to the local boundary layer, as I mentioned, to the boundary layer thickness, I should say. And then as a result, they say that a friction increment is produced by making the boundary layer become more turbulent. So as you'd expect, if you are making the velocity near the surface go faster, it means that the friction is going to increase a little bit. But as I mentioned earlier, that's not the only drag component that does increase. Also, uh, pressure drag often increases as well. Uh, but that can be reduced with, counter with um, micro vortex generators or sub-boundary layer vortex generators. Another thing that most people don't talk about is that vortex generators can change the induced drag of the wing. And the reason why they do that is because they change the circulation around the wing. I'm not going to get into that because uh, that was actually a big part of my PhD. And as I mentioned, it's a four-year project, so I can't really cover much of that in five minutes. I'll probably do something else on that later. But they can change the induced drag of a wing based on changing the circulation. I've done some other podcasts talking about circulation as well there. So generally, vortex generators can be set as a counter-rotating array or co-rotating array, as I mentioned. Vortex, and then, as I mentioned, they can be put onto many different applications. So they can be on regular airfoils or fixed-wing aircraft. They can be on blades of rotating aircraft, rotating-wing aircrafts. They can be on cars. They can be on wind turbines. And in this paper, they want to look at wind turbines. Now, one limitation of this paper is that they didn't as far as I can tell, they didn't look at the um, rotational effects of the wind turbine on the fluid. So when a wind turbine goes around, obviously the wind blades rotate and that rotation uh, affects the path that the fluid going over the blade will take and also affect the airfoil profile that the, the, air, the fluid will see. But they want to look at how these voltage generators can be used in a wind turbine situation. They say that these vortex generators could be installed on the blade zones uh, where the flow separation regions exist, thus improving the fatigue limit, the, sorry, the fatigue lifetime of the blade due to reduced uh, load fluctuating, um, which is, occurs due to um, flow separation. So by putting these vortex generators on these blades, they can reduce the amount of uh, flow separation and reduce the fluctuations in loading and increase the lifespan because it's not fatiguing as much the blade. So vortex generators are easily installed and they can be used as an add-on for wind turbines that do not perform as expected. For instance, due to blade surface imperfections in the manufacturing process. So some studies such as OYA um, showed that at normal operating conditions, the power produced of an onshore one megawatt wind turbine can be increased by 15 to 25% when you put wind turbine um, vortex generators on the wind turbine. That's amazing. So what they're saying is a one megawatt wind turbine is suffering by about 15 to 25% due to uh, flow separation and wind turbine, wind 
practitioners can benefit that. They can get rid of that problem, at least to some extent. So the experiment on a 2.5 megawatt wind turbine made by Sullivan and his paper or her paper for testing the effects of water trainers on the power conservation, power conversion performance presents an increase in 11%. So in other words, water trainers are really beneficial for wind turbines. They range between 10% and 25% increases for power outputs. And not to mention the increase in lifespan due to reduced fatigue. And we've done podcasts on play wind turbines as well in the, like the podcasts around 50, 55. So check them out as well. So the design of a vortex generator is a hard task because of the very variety of design parameters, such as the device height, length, and shape. But not only that, you can also have nonlinear vortex generators. So you can have curves, you can have them even backwards. Anything that can produce a vortex is technically a vortex generator if you think about it. <laughs> so you can have any shape you want under the sun and it will still be a vortex generator. So that's why there's so much research on vortex generators. They also say that the distance between the vortex generators and the location of them on the blade cordwise direction are important factors as well, which is also true, and also how you align them to the flow. So there's just so much to look at. So they say that it was concluded throughout CFT computations on a negligible adverse pressure gradient flat plate that the lower the device height, the lower the vortex strength level but also the lower drag penalty. So this is a general relationship, which is true, but there are some micro vortex generators which still perform just as well as regular vortex generators. So even though they might produce um, uh, weaker vortices, they do the job just as well in terms of pumping in high momentum flow into the uh, boundary layer near the surface and delaying stall. But they say here, therefore, the vortex generator height influences the vortex formation. So one thing they say is the primary vortex size increases with the device angle in a non-linear way. So that makes sense to some extent um, when you think about stall as well. Like it's actually, this is actually quite meta when you think about it, when you have a airfoil, which you're trying to delay stall on. So you put these objects on, but if you put them at too high angle attack, then they're going to stall as well. <laughs> they may not produce as um, good a vortex. So, so that's um, quite interesting. In this paper, they're looking at three different shapes. They're looking at a rectangular vortex generator. So this is just effectively think of a, a flat plate that's just stuck vertically onto a surface. They're looking at a triangular vortex generator. So think of a right angle triangle, and that's pointing into the flow somewhat. It's at an angle of 18 degrees, but approximately to the flow and then an ACA 0012 airfoil. That's really interesting because I've never seen an ACA 0012 airfoil used as a vortex generator. And I was quite surprised. That's why I took an interest in this paper. The heights of these vortex generators are five millimeters. The lengths are 12.5 millimeters and they're installed at an 18 degree angle attack to the pressure direction. And they say a single vortex generator has been computed under symmetrical flow assumption for Reynolds number of 2,600 based on the boundary line momentum thickness. Let me just quickly cover what boundary line momentum thickness means. Um, when we talk about boundary layer thickness, we often just assume that we're talking about the point um, in the flow in, in the boundary layer where the velocity is 99% of the free stream direction, uh, free stream velocity. As we get to that point, we then say, okay, that's the thickness of the boundary layer. But that's only based on the velocity. You can also have the momentum thickness, which is based on 
the momentum of the of the boundary layer, which takes into account not only velocity but mass. But then there's also other ways that you can quantify a boundary layer thickness. Boundary layer momentum thickness is one of those ways. And it's fairly um, common for vortex generators to look into this thickness, not just the um, typical thickness of based on the velocity of 99% free stream direction, a free stream velocity, sorry. I mean, there's some pictures here. Uh, if you want to see them, you can just click the link in the description or look on our uh, YouTube channel for the podcast. So this is interesting here. They said a terminus level at maximum free stream velocity was 0.5%. Now, the reason why this is interesting, it may just seem like a, a um, general tidbit of information, but it is quite important because we're talking about flow separation. And over a surface, an airfoil, for example, the terminus intensity will affect how the, um, the angle attack that the object will uh, experience stall. And the greater this um, terminus intensity, the more turbulent the flow will be, and then the high angle attack the object can be pitched at before stall occurs. So for a terms level of 0.5%, that's fairly low. So that's a typical wind tunnel uh, terms intensity level. And that means that at, um, I would say at about a random number of 300,000 to 500,000, you're going to be starting to get transitional flow, maybe maybe 200,000. But below that, you have a lambda flow approximately. Above that, will be turbulent. That's what a terms intensity level of 0.5% will yield for a typical flat plate. So they they um, put these vortex generators in a counter-rotating uh, array. As I mentioned earlier, you can have counter-rotating vortices or co-rotating vortices. They put them in the counter-rotating array. So you have um, two vortices of opposite signs washing down fluid between them and then when, when they're um, both pointing down and then when they're both putting up they upwash the fluid between them so let's move on and i just have a quick domain showing that they're um, normalizing everything to the height of the vortex generator so the distance downstream the um, distance to the side etc are all normalized to the height of the vortex generator which is what they'll be using from now on h okay so they look at the results. So it's the CFD simulations they did. Um, they've modeled all three vortex generators and all of them are height of five millimeters. And for the experimental measurements, uh, they give the co comparison between the CFD and experiments for the three different vortex generators at different distances downstream and also um, to the side, which is interesting. So when you think about a vortex generator, you don't really think about how the momentum is being pushed into the uh, boundary layer near the surface in terms of span-wise direction. So you might just think, okay, directly behind the vortex generator is doing that. But when you go a little bit further to the side, now the boundary layer is sort of untouched. So one thing that's good with this paper is that they look at the distance to the side of the vortex generator to see how that gets affected. What they found was that when you go downstream by 10 heights, of the vortex generator. The directly behind the vortex generator, the boundary layer is very affected. But as you go further away, so um, half a distance between the two vortex generators, so mid midway, the boundary layer isn't really affected too much at this point. But as you go further downstream, the boundary layer becomes more and more affected at this point. And why is that? Well, that's because the vortices are now dissipating, they're growing, and they're getting weaker in this core. Uh, 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 
lower vorticity in their core, I should say, they are breaking down, which then leads to their weakness. But because they are getting bigger, they're interacting with a lot more fluid to the side of them. Oh, the vortex generator, they're covering more distance. So that means that between the vortex generators now, that boundary layer is getting more affected the further downstream you go until the vortices break down, of course. Another interesting thing to look at is as you go further to the side, the boundary layer does not follow a, a continuous pattern, really. I mean, when you look at the boundary layer um, velocity profile, it sweeps up. But at certain points, there are inflections. So like near the near the uh, surface, the boundary layer velocity is faster than going up a few millimeters. So that means that the vortices are doing their job where they're pumping a lot more higher velocity flow into the boundary layer near the surface. But it's just interesting to see this pattern because you don't see it too often. Now, they also look at the triangular vortex generator, the same sort of thing. And they find, again, as you go downstream, the... Uh, Boundary layer gets affected a little bit more to the span-wise direction, but they also are doing their job in terms of pumping a lot more velocity into the boundary layer near the surface. So that's good. So they say, for all study vortex generators, a deficit in the velocity in zones near the vortex core is observed as a normal behavior. The vortex size is increased downstream of the vein. So let's talk about this. That's interesting. They say the velocity in the zones near the vortex core reduces and that kind of makes sense because if you're in the vortex core, you're not actually having any velocity being pumped into it because there's no, like the, there's no um, upwash or downwash. You're in the core, so technically it's just stagnant, I guess, or well, not stagnant, but it's not going up or down or to the sides. But as you go further away from the core, you then have more upwash and downwash. That's when it's going to be more effective. So that's interesting to note. They say for a spanwise location of z equals zero, so uh, the boundary layer is thinned, but for a spanwise location of z equals 10 millimeters, the low momentum fluid is swept upwards by the vortex, thickening the boundary layer and making it less prone to separation. They say that the symmetrical vortex generator of the NACA 0012 show similar velocity profiles compared with the triangular vortex generator ones. So again, as I mentioned, I haven't seen a NACA 0012 F um, vortex generator before and it just shows you how many different geometries you can come up with you can literally come up with anything you want and it will work now one cool thing i have is the cross-sectional velocity planes as you um, go downstream of the different vortex generators and it's really cool when you're very close to the vortex generator to begin with you get typical roll-ups where you have um, two vortices of opposite signs rolling up as you go further downstream they kind of become like mushroom clouds like you know when you drop a nuke and you get the mushroom cloud forming, that's what they look like, and then they start to dissipate from there. So they grow up, they get higher up in the boundary layer, and then they just start dissipating. And in the cores of these vortex generators, or at least vortices, sorry, you get a very slow-moving fluid, as you'd expect. Now, the last thing we're going to cover in this podcast before the second podcast is a vortex trajectory. So the vertical path and the lateral path of the primary vortex core downstream of the vein is presented in figure 10. Let's go to figure 10. So what they have here are the three different um, vortex generators and how the vortices from these vortex generators move up uh, downstream. So in a vertical path, up and down, and laterally, left to right. And what they find is the vortices from the NACA 0012 and the triangular vortex generators stay much closer to the surface than for the rectangular vortex generator. Now this kind of makes sense to some extent um, because when you think about the rectangular vortex generator 
it's just a block of mass. So the vortex is being produced along the entire thing. Whereas for the triangular one, the vortex is really only being produced um, near the back because that's where the thickest part is. Now for the NACA 0012, I forgot to mention what I think it's doing to create a vortex. So I think the way that it's creating a vortex is simply due to the winter vortex. You have the NACA 0012 that's installed an angle attack of 18 degrees. So that's producing a lot of lift. In fact, it's probably going to be stalling, but there should be some a bit of lift still. And because you're producing lift, you have a vortex, a um, winter vortex being produced. And I think it's that winter vortex which is um, acting the same way. I think that's how they're producing the vortex. I'm not sure if you know, let me know in the comments, but that's what I think it's happening. Okay, so back to the trajectories. As I mentioned, the um, vortices coming from the rectangular vortex generators, they jump up from the surface a lot more, about double actually to the other vortices from the other two triangular and NACA 0012 as you go downstream. Into the lateral path, they all follow a fairly similar um, path in terms of you know, wandering to the side. They will wander to the side quite a lot as you go downstream. So that's why I'm going to end this podcast because there's still another half of this paper where you talk about vortex decay and um, strengths and that. That's a very interesting part and there's a lot to talk about there. That'll be in podcast number two, the second part. Uh, and but so make sure to like and subscribe us and check out the atmosphere hawk this is an instrument that we invented to accurately measure the density of the air that you're using in your experiments the reason why you want to do this is because the density of air changes by two to four percent on a regular day even throughout the day for example today i have my atmosphere hawk here actually the when i wake up um and i checked it i took it home with me <laughs> i um saw that it was about 1.175 kilograms per meter cubed. Now, which is about midday in the office, it's about 1.185. So it's, it's already changed the percent here, and we still have more of the day to go. And this error makes your experiments erroneous because now you, when you try to measure the, the velocity of your wind tunnel, it's going to be different to what you think it's going to be because the density is different. And then when you try to use that data to validate your CFD, that's a problem because your CFD, you're assuming a certain density, but it's not. Um, and you're assuming a certain velocity, but it's not that either. So that Mr. Hawk gets rid of that error for you and it makes your experiments much better. So check that out. Link in the description. And I'll see you next podcast. Peace out, amigos.